Today's program was made possible by the generous prayer and support of the faithful friends and partners of this ministry. Visit our new website at Sheila.media. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zelensky Show for this Monday, August the 13th, 2018 edition. So glad you could tune into the program today, and what a great program it is, and I want to jump right into it. My guest today is the one and only Tim Alberino. From the Alberino Analysis, of course, you know him from Gen 6 Productions. He's got a new book coming out by the end of the year. He's going to be in Branson, and there's lots to get into. Timothy Alberino, welcome back to the program, sir. It is great to have you back on, my friend. Well, it's great to be with you again. Well, it's great to have you here, Tim. Listen, where I want to start, give the folks a little sneak peek about A, your book, what you're covering in it, and then give us a little sneak peek pre-Branson, if you will, please. Well, uh, obviously, everybody's going to be bringing material related to presenting material related to transhumanism and the hybrid age at the conference. And uh, that's kind of a broad spectrum when you get into it. So I've decided to rather than focus on the actual technologies that the emerging technologies that are under development and, and the technical aspect, I've decided to focus my attention more on the philosophical aspect of transhumanism, the religion, we might say, of transhumanism, and define the hybrid age. What does it mean that we're moving into the hybrid age? So uh, I'm going to be covering a lot of things at the conference, so I really don't know where to start. But one thing that I, I think escapes a lot of people when I think about transhumanism, a lot of people at this point are aware of transhumanism, at least in a general sense, that there's a, a new movement that's really unique to the 20th, uh, 21st century, I should say, that is encouraging the human race to apotheosize, to become gods through technology, through the medium of technology, to defeat death, to defeat aging and decay, and to transform our biology, to upgrade our biology. And this is a, using technology, um, using cybernetics, nanotechnology, genetic technologies, and, and so forth. And, and, and this, is, this is a new philosophy in that it is the technology is, is is now available to actually do that but but the idea of transhumanism the the bedrock of the philosophy even though it was it was impractical at the time was laid in the in the late 19th century in the early 20th century and that's something that escapes people is where did the philosophy come from and how did we get to where we are in terms of technology and in terms of this philosophy of transhumanism and of posthumanism where where we're ultimately headed where did it come from how did it develop and what does it mean for the human race and so that's what i'm focusing on at the conference and you can i mean if you want to dig deeper into that you we can go deeper into it but that's in in a in a nutshell what i'm presenting well, let's dig a little deeper because you know what I really, and we're going to kind of tie this in, Tim, because when we talk about, and you talk about this a lot, the pre-flood advanced civilization that existed before this cataclysm that annihilated it, this genetic miscegenation. We talk a lot about the Book of Giants and extra biblical texts that were, of course, discovered amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. These books call these things monsters. So these watchers that were banished to the abyss, some believe they will, you know, be held there until the Day of Judgment. It's interesting to think that maybe technology is the missing link because, you know, when you look at the high-level sorcery that still exists today from the Sons of Cain, they were engaged in some 
weirdness. Some people believe there was a, a second incursion, but isn't it interesting that the Helena Blavatsky's and all these high-level occultists, they always talk about these entities. It's interesting to think that technology could be the very thing that, for lack of a better word, reincarnates this stuff, isn't it? Yes, I think that technology is the medium through which the activities that occurred in the pre-flood world are going to be repeated. So um, we're going to see a, a reoccurrence of what happened, what brought the what brought the world to ruin in the antediluvian age. We're going to see a reoccurrence of those transgressions, of those same mechanisms, but we're going to see them unfold through the medium of technology in our time. And what we're seeing right now is the convergence of all of these technologies, which is unprecedented, that we, ha- that we have uh, all of these emergent technologies, including, as I said, as I, men- I mentioned some of them before, genetics, robotics, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and um, cybernetics, and so forth. All of these technologies are relatively new, and, they're all, and, and they've all been developed in isolation, but no longer are they being developed in isolation. Now they're being integrated together and developed as a whole, and they all are now incorporating completely components of one another. And uh, what what the end game of all of this technology means for the human race is nothing less than post-humanism. That is the end of the line. That's where the technology is going. It's what Barbara Marx Hubbard calls conscious evolution. It is the human race deciding to evolve itself. It is Frederick Nietzsche's will to power. We are going to make a conscious decision. We already are subconsciously, but we're going to make a, a conscious decision in the near future to evolve our biology beyond Adam, to become something other than human. We will decide collectively to become post-human. And that is the deception. That's what is happening, what's fomenting behind the scenes are the adversaries of the human race. The human race has adversaries, not just Christians. Everybody is familiar with the idea that Christians have adversaries in the spiritual realms and so forth, and even in the in in among other human beings, the persecuting elements of uh, uh, among humans that are persecuting Christians throughout the, the earth. But the human race itself, Christian, secular, whatever, has an adversary, has adversaries, not just the adversary, not just the devil, but non-human adversaries that hate us and that want to take from us, that want to steal our birthright, frankly. And so these agencies, I call them alien agencies. That's exactly what they are. They're not us. They're alien to us. Their alien agencies are involved in a conspiracy to take what belongs to us, to take from us what belongs to us, and to usurp the earth, to usurp our authority on the earth. And it's a, it's a long, it's a long, and it, it's a deep rabbit hole, but um, that's where this is headed. Post-humanism, there's a new religion coming. I call it apotheotheism. It's a contrived word that I've created myself. Apotheotheism. That is the religion of the future. We're moving into a time in which men are no longer going to simply deny the existence of God. And by the way, not just the existence of God, but the advent of the flood, which is key. Men are going to move from a posture of denial to open defiance against God. That's the future on planet Earth. And that's some of what I'm going to be uh, unpacking in, in, in Branson. 
Wow, sounds so interesting. Well, and as you said, transhumanism, it isn't a new concept. In my opinion, it actually really started in the garden with this tantalizing offer of immortality. Ye shall be as gods. You mentioned Nietzsche, Nietzsche's Uberman, Superman, these Superman and demigods. We see the Nazis were backbreeding to the Nephilim with these ideas of recreating this empire of the gods. Now, you have an interesting take on these exiles of Atlantis and what kind of perhaps alchemy and sorcery and necromancy and technology was deployed to open gateways, portals, doorways, entryways. I mean, that would certainly explain how the knowledge of the unsanctioned offspring made it through the flood, certainly. I mean, it all ties together into this idea of what a second incursion might have looked like. Talk about that. Well, I I have a theory called Exiles, uh, the Exiles of Atlantis, as it pertains to how the the offspring of the Watchers, the genetic line of the of, of the offspring of the Watchers, made it into a post-flood context. How did they make it through the flood? There are several contingencies. In fact, there's probably at least half a dozen when you look at all of them. And uh, the most popular contingencies are that a the genes made it through the offspring of Noah through Noah's sons' wives is a is a popular contention. Or b the there was another incursion. There was a second incursion. In, in other words, it happened again. The 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 Genesis 6 advent happened again in the earth after the flood. Watcher-type entities descended, took wives among the children of men, copulated with them, and produced more offspring, more hybrid offspring. I find both of those scenarios to be unlikely for several reasons, although they are uh, possible, but in my mind unlikely. Um, I favor a contingency which allows for the escape of some of the entities from the Empire of the Gods, from the Antediluvian Age. Some of the some of the hybrid entities, and maybe even some of the human components. I don't know, depending on what kind of technology was available to them. Now, why do I say this? Well, this that would seem anti-biblical, and I get accused all the time of, of ignoring what the text plainly says. But one thing we have to understand about the Bible, especially the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis, just like the book of Genesis is very analogous to the book of Revelation, That's that may come as a surprise to people, but it actually is. It's very closely related, very closely associated with the book of Revelation. It's extremely, exceedingly enigmatic, the book of Genesis. And so the book of Genesis doesn't tell us everything plainly. In fact, it tells us some things apparently plainly that it doesn't actually mean and there's some there's some examples of that so when we talk about when we talk about the potentiality of entities escaping the flood we can find the evidence for this in the myth and legend of every primary culture across the earth every primary culture in the earth has a a cataclysm myth a myth concerning the great cataclysm that occurred in ancient times that destroyed the earth, that annihilated the, the inhabitants of the earth, that destroyed, most in most cases, it's related as a cataclysm that destroyed an empire, an empire of the offspring of the gods, a hybrid empire, the golden age. Part of the myth, in most cases, we, we find a flood, because that is in fact what happened, the flood, God sent a flood. Most myths will relate the flood. Some just talk about a cataclysm, a great war, a great cataclysm that, that destroyed the empire of the gods. And so in most cases, we find a flood. But in, in, in almost every case, in almost every case, we find the narrative that somebody escaped and not just Noah, that 
that human beings obviously made it through the cataclysm. The Bible says Noah, and that's the truth. That's the true narrative. Noah made it through the cataclysm because God preserved him and his offspring and the animals that were with him. So Noah made it through, but not only did the human race make it through, according to these myths and legends, but also some of the quote-unquote golden race the hybrids, the offspring of the gods, some of them, or at least their knowledge, made it through, through some other means, outside of the ark, outside of the preservation, the, the providential preservation of the human race. And many of these myths talk about entities, whether it be winged dragons or, or serpent dra serpentine dragon-type creatures or reptilian-type entities, the Naga, for example, in the, in the Indian lore. Um, some of them talk about the Anunnaki-type creatures, the Apkalu-type entities that made it through, according to Sumerian lore. And there's all different kinds of myths, myths and legends out there that, get, that, that are hinting at the idea that somebody somehow survived, that should not have survived, that these entities reappeared in the world and they began to reteach the lost knowledge. That's what I call the Exiles of Atlantis, because Atlantis represents in itself, it represents, it's, it's, it's an analogy of the pre-flood world in general of the Empire of the Gods, because Atlantis was founded by Poseidon, according to the legend. And Poseidon was a god. He took for himself a wife among the daughters of men. He, he, he fathered five pairs of, of twins, all males, who became the kings uh, of his empire, the regents of his empire. And so that's an analogy of the pre-flood world. So that's why I call it the Exiles of Atlantis. Somebody escaped, somebody made it through. Now, how, how would that have been achieved? Well, I don't know. But if, we, but if there was high technology in the antediluvian world, which I believe there was, unquestionably, high technology, then I think it is reasonable to then assume that some of these entities, or at least surmise that some of these entities might have used technology to either go off planet or go into the, into the bowels of the earth, into the chambers of the earth to escape the flood. Now, there's also a popular contingency, which I also believe is plausible, that the information of the, some of the knowledge of the Watchers was rediscovered by subsequent generations, post-flood generations, and somehow they were able to reconjure somebody, something in the earth, and, and, you, and you got, a, a, to a degree, a, a, a reoccurrence of what had happened in the world before the flood. It's very technical. It's a very complex situation. But when I look at, for example, the kind of technology that I have personally seen with my own eyes, the kind of aerial craft that we, we, we associate with unidentified flying objects, UFOs. If that kind of technology existed in the pre-flood world, and I think there's indications that it did, then it's not hard to imagine something or somebody escaping the flood. Yeah, that, I think you're right on, on track there. Well, and you just talked about this golden age race, the, the way the Luciferians, Tim, want to recreate, not just the golden age, a time of great sorcery, alchemy, the genetic destruction, but Blavatsky and, as you just said, these other Atlantean hybrid entities, you went to Sardinia. The genes of the giants are still in the lineage amongst the people of Sardinia. Do you think the Nazi breeding program, this Lebensborn, um, I kind of call it the backbreeding to the Nephilim, these bizarre experiments with full skeleton DNA testing, could these giant humanoids, could they be reanimated? Or could technology hold the key to unlocking this golden age recreation, for lack of a better word? Well, the Nazis believed that uh, that they were a degenerated race 
that the original progenitors of their race, the Aryan race, were godmen. And that's the terminology they use, but the, but the more accurate ter- terminology would be were the offspring of the gods, were hybrids, were the offspring of the gods, were demigods. So the, so the, the Nazis believed that the Aryan race the root of the Aryan race were demigods. So did Blavatsky. And so they were actually, they, they were somewhat accurate in, in this belief if they would have changed the terminology. They believed that that within the A- Aryan gene pool, the genes of, the, of, the, of that demigod race were still, they were latent in the gene pool of the Aryan people and they had to be refined. The Nazis had to breed out all of the weak elements, all of the weak genetic elements and refine the original genetics of their of their genesis which again they believe to be the offspring of the gods uh and so the nazis the nazis believe that they were from an atlantean type empire and that that atlantean type empire was destroyed in the great in a great cataclysm just like i i mentioned and this wasn't by the way a mythological belief this was a this was a philosophical and a theological belief yeah among not just the Nazis, not just the National Socialists, but many of the Germans of the, at that time and Northerners, they believed that, uh, of course, it was racist. They believed that they were a superior race whose whose gene pool was being muddied, was being sullied by inferior races, mainly the Gypsies and the Jews, but not not exclusively the Gypsies and the Jews. The Gypsies, the Jews, and 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 what they called the Negro race. They believe that their gene pool was being sullied. So obviously, we're dealing with an extreme form of racism. It's important to understand that Lebensborn program was specifically devised to refine and rebreed the master race. And it was, it was technological. It was very highly systematic. Heinrich Himmler was, was one of its uh, architects. And it was, it was a program that, that they were implementing. And for those who aren't familiar with Lebens, Lebensborn, it means, it means fountain of life, basically, is what it translates roughly into English, or fount of life. And it was basically, it was birthing, house, birthing houses. It was places where um, women who were decidedly, uh, who were determined to be of pure Aryan stock, young women would be gathered together. They would live almost in, in like a, um, a cloister, like almost like a nun's cloister. And the Nazis, the Aryans, that were mainly of the SS, part of the SS, Himmler's faction within the, within the uh, National Socialists, would go to these birthing houses, these Lebensborn houses, and they would copulate with these women. Uh, they wouldn't marry them. They would just go and copulate with them, even though many of these SS officers were married. They were encouraged to go and copulate with these these young Aryan women of pure stock, and then the women would just basically be baby-making machines at that point. And, and, and they were giving birth to, to hundreds and hundreds of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryans. And so it was a very systematic program that was uh, that was underway, and it was it was it was eugenics. I mean, it was the kind of eugenics that, frankly, that uh, Margaret Sanger would have loved to employ in the United States. Margaret Sanger, being the founder of Planned Parenthood, who was extremely racist and wanted to destroy um, what she called the Negro race in the United States. That's what Planned Parenthood was devised to do: was to was to be a a Lebensborn type program, but but the antithesis of Lebensborn. She, uh, Hitler was trying to breed in the master race. She was using the same kind of tactics to breed out yeah. the inferior races in the United States. Planned Parenthood is exceedingly racist. It's it's uh, its roots, and and that's uh, that's a fact. And it's interesting that transhumanism is kind of a modern eugenics today, isn't it? 
That's exactly what it is. It is. But you know what? I, there's there's a new species arising, and I in my book I call them. I there are two di- there are two human two divergent human species. You have just the good old fashioned broken down degenerate humans. Us. <laughs> I call us Nia humans, as in Neanderthalic humans, because that's what we're going to be considered. And then you have the new transhuman stock, the neo humans, yeah. the new humans, the upgraded humans. And there will be a there's going to be a class system. If you're upgraded, you're going to be in a different class than, you know, and a lot of people who aren't going to upgrade, by the way, are or the religious people, not just Christians. A lot of Muslims will, will refuse these upgrades and Hindus and so forth. We'll all be looked at together collectively as Neanderthalic holding on to the barbaric rudiments of human society, not evolving, not consciously evolving with the rest of humanity. In fact, Barbara Marx Hubbard views us as a threat that needs to be removed, called from the population, that we are hindering the conscious evolution of the human species to take their rightful place among the ascended beings in the universe. And those of us who are against this plan of conscious evolution are Neanderthalic and need to be eradicated from the earth. It's a very aggressive uh, strategy. Well, and not only eradicated, but, you know, it's sold under the guise of, hey, you know what God did is just didn't quite cut it. He needed a little help there, didn't he, Tim? Yes, I think it's, you know, the ultimate root of transhumanism is, as we all know, in the Garden of Eden, you shall be like the gods. And when it says you shall be like the gods, I think people get that wrong in that they think that the snake, the serpent, the being, the reptilian being is what I think it was, in the garden was telling Eve that she could be like, uh, that she could be like God or the son of God. And I don't think that's what he was conveying to her. I don't think that Adam and Eve were that foolish. I think what this being was telling Adam and Eve was, look, you guys were made to be a little lower than the angels, which is what the Bible says concerning the human race. But you can be like them. You can be just like them, like us, in other words, coming from this serpent. You can, I call, the, I call angels because angels a very nebulous term amorphous term. It doesn't mean anything. It just, it's, it's a designation of occupation. Messenger, that's what it means, messenger. Um, so I call the angels the elder race. They were before us. It's an accurate term. They were before us. They, they pre-exist us. Um, there are elders in terms of creation, and, and I think that when the serpent, the, this serpentine being, was, was what, what he was telling Eve was, you can be like us, like those who are greater than you, who were before you, and that's what that's what he was offering. Because you know the 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 knowledge that they have and that they had was much greater than the knowledge that was given to the human race. However, the authority that was given to Adam, as it pertained to the earth, was much greater than the authority. In fact, it was. In fact, Adam had authority on earth, and they did not. And so it's a it's a usurpation. That's the end of the. That's the end game. Is is usurpation of the human race. It's a very complex subject matter. That, uh, but that's where the roots of transhumanism are, are are derived. Is is with the serpent in the garden. You can be like them, like the gods, and that's where we're going. That's exactly where we're going. Well, you just said knowledge. Here's this, uh, Tim, and I think this is important, this tree of knowledge God warns about. We don't know if there was a physical tree or who even put it there, really. All we know is there's a reference to this tree of knowledge. Is it weird to you that these high-level Kabbalists 
and the Zohar mystics always say the word tree of knowledge, and then they call their Kabbalah tree of knowledge. Is that a weird little coincidence? Well, the Bible, the Bible itself is highly esoteric. People don't like that. I'm sorry, it is. The Bible says in the book of Revelations, it says, he who has wisdom, calculate the number of the beast. It doesn't tell us what, it tells us we got to figure it out. That's esoteric. That's enigmatic. Um, that's how prophecy is, by the way. That's what the nature of prophecy is. It's not plain. It's hidden for the for the wise to unravel, and for those who are given revelation. So the and this is this is this is where I'm going. Is there were two trees in in the garden? There was the tree of life, and there was the tree of knowledge. Now somebody somebody is called the tree of life in yeah. the Bible. Yeah. Jesus is called the tree of life. So so the tree of life is Jesus. And now, does that mean there wasn't an actual tree? That's not what I'm saying. I don't know, but I do know that the, that the scriptures are are telling us when we say tree of life, we're also saying Jesus. We're saying the Son of God. And so, what does that mean then? If the, if we know that 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 there's a there's a dual meaning to tree of life, then isn't there also a, tr- a dual meaning to tree of of knowledge beyond being just a bi- just being a, a biological tree. Does it mean something beyond being a tree? Does it does it if, if Jesus is the tree of life, then who is the tree of knowledge? Rather than thinking of it as a as just a tree, it represents something much more than just a tree and a piece of fruit from that tree. And that is what the initiates of the mysteries know. This is something that uh, that they're very well aware of. They understand the analogy better than most Christians, but they take the flip side. They subscribe to the inversion of the gospel. They reject the gospel. They literally subscri- subscribe to the Bible upside down. They subscribe to the inversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the cross, the work of the cross, the redemption of the human race, that it's it's that's what the deception is. That's where the lie is for them. And it was the the serpentine entity that was the the true Prometheus of the human race. That that it was those entities, the watchers and the serpent and the serpentine entities that existed in the earth. These were the true benefactors of the human race. And Adonai, God Yahweh, uh, and His Son were the enemies. Were the were the tyrants. Were were keeping the knowledge from Adam. They didn't want Adam to be like the rest of the host of heaven. They wanted Adam to be a slave race or whatever it is that they uh, believe. And so it's the it's the inversion of the gospel. And it's a blatant inversion of the gospel. And that's the that's really what the occult is. If you want to say it, one one sentence, Kabbalah, Masonry, all of the different uh, ancient uh, mystery school systems, they are inversions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what they are. Exactly, yes. And inversions of the gospel, to me, are anti-Christ. And yet churches are not talking about this stuff. Oh, who cares about the antediluvian pre-flood world construct? It's important. Why? Because when people, Tim, understand the historical context and a true historical timeline, they'll understand what's coming. The Bible's real. There's a lost and dying world out there that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet if they could understand what really went on in history, they'd be prepared for the future and that Jesus is the only way out of this mess that's coming. The biblical narrative is the last place that people want to look in the world. Look at these ancient alien expeditions where they go like to places like you've been in Sardinia. They say, oh, yeah, this is proof of aliens. This is proof we came from them. 
many voices today are even telling our children and grandchildren that we evolved from aliens, not God. Again, you've seen these megaliths. There's angles in these things that would make Newton salivate massive hundred ton structures that you can't even slip a piece of paper between them. It's clear that these ancient alien crowds, they don't have the correct timeline. So that's important. Yes, I think that the conventional timeline of history depicts the human race getting dumber and less sophisticated and less civilized the further back you go in time until, of course, ultimately we're, we're hominids, we're apes, um, you know, pounding stones together with puckered lips. That's, that's the timeline of, of conventional history. Now, uh, the only people, the, the, we were mentioning the initiates before, those on this planet who have knowledge understand that that timeline is ridiculous. The timeline of history does have a retrograde. In other words, if you go from where we are today and you move backwards in time, you do see the the retrograde of of civilization, the retrograde of technology. It where it's gradually getting it's gradually getting more and more barbaric. It's gradually getting more and more rudimentary going back in time until you hit what I call, until you arrive at what I call the, the tombstone in the timeline of history. You're retrograding from the 21st century all the way back to the tombstone in the timeline of history before the Sumerians. What is that tombstone? It's the flood. If you then move beyond the flood, if you go further back in time beyond the flood, you're no longer in a retrograde. Now you're moving into a period of time on, the, on, this, on this timeline of history that is incomprehensibly advanced, using a form of technology unknown in many ways to the human race and dealing with knowledge and entities that are, 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 are superiors in terms of knowledge and understanding and even in, in technological terms. So that's why they can't understand when they look at the walls of Sacsayhuaman. That's why they, they have to contrive ropes and logs and, you know, thousands of, of natives uh, pulling on these megalithic blocks and, and lifting them into place and stone hammers and copper chisels and so forth, because that's the only thing that fits into their retrograde paradigm. And their retrograde paradigm is accurate until you get to the tombstone in the timeline of history. Then it falls apart. And it's denial of the flood. That's what it boils down to, denial of the flood. It is denial of the flood. It's what I'm talking about my presentation in Branson. It, it, it didn't begin with Charles Darwin. It began with Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell was uh, the father of uniformitarianism before Charles Darwin. And what uniformitarian, geologic uniformitarianism, it's a theory that says that the changes in the earth have been constant, have been uniform throughout the history of the planet. In other words, there was, there's no catastrophism because the other theory, the theory that was held before uniformitarianism by everybody in every major university, and also this was the, this was the truth that was known to the Greeks and the Romans and the Babylonians and the Persians and so forth, was called catastrophism catastrophe, cataclysm, that there have been cycles of cataclysm. And that's true. And uniformitarianism was concocted to deny uh, catastrophism, cataclysm, specifically to deny the advent of the flood. And so Charles Lyell paved the way for Charles Darwin, who came, who was, who was his contemporary. And Darwin built his theory of evolution on the bedrock, on the foundation of uniformitarianism, of, Ch of Charles Lyell's geologic uniformitarianism, 
which basically Darwin built his theory of evolution, the evolution of species, on a foundation of flood denial. There's a reason why Charles Lyell and Charles Darwin, who, who laid the scientific thesis for the scientific foundation to deny the flood, then came the philosophical foundation, which was laid by many people, primarily by Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche was the architect of transhuman philosophy, and I would say Friedrich Nietzsche and then Aleister Crowley. And so you have this foundation laid that the purpose of this foundation is to deny the flood, deny the flood. Why? Why is there a stratagem by our alien adversaries to deny the flood? Because if you can get the human race to forget the flood, then you can bring about a reoccurrence of the mechanisms that led to the flood. So it's essential. You have to get men to forget the consequence, to, get, to forget the flood, to, to forget the consequence of defiance against God. If you're going to lead them again into open insurrection against God, that's what the uniformitarianism and then the theory of evolution and then ultimately this new religion that's coming is is designed to do. It's designed to reconjure the level of lawlessness that existed in the earth before the flood and 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 to reintroduce the same kind of entities that that set the mechanisms into motion the first time that led to the flood. And that's what that's what this is all about. Remember the rainbow after the flood, God put the rainbow in the sky to do what? Well, it was a promise to Noah, I'm not going to destroy the earth with water ever again. Okay, that's great, except for the fact that <laughs> he said he wouldn't destroy it with water, but we know that he, he's going to destroy it with fire the second time. So the purpose of the rainbow wasn't, it wasn't just that God was saying, don't worry, everybody, I'm not going to do this again. Yes, he's not going to do it again with water, but he's going to do it again with fire, which I think is probably going to be worse. <laughs> so what was the real purpose behind the rainbow? The rainbow is supposed to evoke in the minds of men the memory of the flood, the memory of the consequence of defiance, the consequence of insurrection against God. That's what the rainbow represents. If you rebel against God and if you follow these rebels, these non-human rebels, into open insurrection against God, remember what happened the first time. Remember, that's a warning to the human race. And so if you can get men to forget the flood, to forget the consequence, the adversaries of the human race, the alien adversaries of the human race are going to reappear and lead men into open insurrection against God, which will lead to not a flood, but destruction by fire. It is Psalm 2. Uh, absolutely. And you, you just mentioned alien adversaries reappearing. You know, it's interesting. A lot of high-level decorated military men over the years, Tim, have talked about these alien ships crashing. They contain body and parts of crafts. And these cleanup crews, they swoop in. Boom, nothing to see here. There really is a powerful cover-up. You know, and then you have these abductees that are written off as kooks, especially when some of them are really very decorated military men and people of really uh, upper echelon backgrounds. Many people ask, who are the aliens? And I'm going to let you answer that, Tim. The term alien, a lot of Christians don't like that term, but it is the most accurate term we can possibly use. Alien simply defined means something other than us. It is alien to the human species. It's not us. And so it's a very accurate term, and we ought to use it. Um, our adversaries are alien. They are not us. I don't care. I don't, I'm not particularly concerned 
where they come from. That doesn't matter to me. I don't know where, quote unquote, angels live. None of us know. We, we might say glibly, well, they live in heaven, but we don't really know what that means. And that doesn't seem to bother us. But if we say that there are non-human entities coming from elsewhere, suddenly we have a problem. And I don't think we should. So it doesn't matter. In, 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 the, in the context of the gospel, it doesn't make a difference. But we need to understand where the deception lies. Now, I'm not sure that, as I said, that there's a direct correlation between the entities that are flying around in these aerial craft, and these aerial craft do exist. It is not a spiritual phenomenon. It is a material phenomenon. It is a physical phenomenon. I say this because I, I can say it from, I'm an eyewitness, and, and I know exactly what I was looking at. It was very close. These are material. This is material physical craft, components, nuts and bolts, mechanisms, machines being flown by biological creatures. Um, and so it, it all depends on when you say, when you say, for example, the word Nephilim, the word Nephilim has become problematic because it's used so broadly, it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's very much like the word racist in American society. It's, it's, it's plastered over everything. It's used to describe everything and everybody, and now it doesn't mean anything, and it doesn't describe anybody in specific, in, in particular. That's very much like the word Nephilim. It's been used so broadly, um, so um, indiscriminately, that it doesn't mean anything anymore in a practical sense. So I don't accept the idea that aliens are necessarily Nephilim. I think if you're going to use, if you're going to talk about Nephilim, I think you're talking about something very specific. But if you talk about aliens and use the term aliens or even extraterrestrials, you're talking about something specific in the sense that we're identifying that these things are not us. So very, very specific in that sense, but very unspecific in trying to define then what exactly they are. And so there's a contention that exists, and it's very popular. It is the, the most popular contention among evangelicals that are willing to talk about aliens, for example, that aliens are spiritual beings, that, that the alien abductions in particular, that an alien abduction is a spiritual phenomenon, and that UFOs are somehow spiritual and not physical, and I say hogwash. I don't think there's any any evidence to, to back those claims up whatsoever. In fact, all of the evidence points to the contrary. We are dealing with an, a very physical phenomenon, a very material phenomenon, especially as it pertains to alien abductions. People are physically removed from their homes, and when they're gone during an abduction episode, they are not in their bed anymore. It's not like they were astral, astral projected out of their bodies. Their bodies aren't there because they're somewhere else. Their bodies are not in their bed anymore because they're up in a craft on a table, laid out on a table. And um, this is a very invasive physical phenomenon. When you talk about uh, abductions and when you talk about UFOs in general, you're talking about physical nuts and bolts craft. Craft that can crash and that can be recovered and reverse engineered. And we ought not deceive ourselves on that point. This is a physical phenomenon. Let's accept it. Let's accept and understand that we're dealing with a physical phenomenon and not try and make it something um, that it's not, which I find a lot of, um, a lot of people doing these days. And scientific worldviews abductees as the other kooks, even though, even though the truth is among the abductees, and there are millions just in the United States alone. I'm going to be honest with you, Sheila, and um, I talk about this in my book, but I'm, I think a tenth and I think that's a very conservative number. A tenth of the human populace on Earth are abductees. The scientific world views abductees as kooks, even though among that tenth, 
You have doctors, you have psychiatrists, you have scientists, you have government officials, high-ranking government officials, you have, you have uh, physicists, you have all kinds of people in that, uh, under that umbrella of abductee, alien abductee. So if you're going to say they're kooks, then you better understand who you're defining as a kook, um, for one thing. For another thing, uh, that's how they're viewed from the scientific perspective. But, but within, let's, within the evangelical circles, the, these are people who are viewed as individuals who are suffering from demonic oppression or some kind of a demonic attack, which I think is inaccurate. I don't know what you would call an entity that you could, uh, which you can't, but if you could, you could put a bullet you could put a round in their forehead and, and, and they would drop dead just like you or I. That's not a demon. That's something else. That's, that's more akin to encountering a grizzly bear on a path hiking in the mountains. And you've got to deal with the fact that this isn't a demon that's about to attack you. This is a grizzly bear. This is, this is fur and fat and muscle and, and sharp teeth and claws and it's coming at you. And you, you, can, you can wish it to be a spiritual phenomenon all day long, but when that thing gets on top of you, your illusion is going to dissipate really, really fast. And that's the way I view alien abductions, is, is you, can, you can wish this to be a spiritual phenomenon all day long, but when you're physically being removed from your home and taken up into a craft and having things done to you physically, it's, it's delusional to think that it's a spiritual phenomenon. It is in every way physical. And I think the sooner we, we understand and accept the fact that this is a physical phenomenon, the quicker the, that we might begin to understand how to prohibit it from happening. But the powerful cover-up, I mean, even the Catholic Church, they're interested in baptizing aliens, Tim, and the Catholics barely batted an eye when the Pope said that. You look at the Pontifical Academy and some of the, you know, the alien tech research they've been doing. You know this. You know the Church in the Vatican is built over tombs of giants. They buy up this land. They shut everyone up. A lot of these properties at the Vatican, they own ruins and ancient structures and, and even treasure, but the Church of Rome is is really interested in aliens and, and giants. Is that weird? Um I don't think it's weird. I think it's I think that their interest is rational. Yes. Better but way to say it. However, however, their motivation is wicked, is deceptive. But their interest is rational. In fact, we all should be interested in if what I just said is true that there's a tenth of the population of abductees. I mean, my God, I can't think of anything more critical for the human race, more important to understand and figure out. But um, the Vatican's approaching it from a, they have a motivation and their motivation is to uh, prepare the earth for a revelation that is forthcoming. The Vatican, and when I say the Vatican, understand that it's like saying deep state or something like that. It's, it's, identif it's identifying within the Church of Rome within the Holy See, a very high-level and secretive organization of people. It's not everybody. It's not your local priest at your local parish. It's, it's, it's an initiated group within the Vatican that has this information and that knows things. It's like, you know, in the United States, does the president of the United States know about the alien question? Probably to a degree, but President Trump does not have the, the um, authorization to, to, to go into the deep underground military bases. He doesn't. He doesn't have authorization to go to the S-4 facility. Uh, he doesn't have authorization to get into the top to the above top secret facilities that uh, where we're housing uh, our, our recovered and reverse engineered craft. He doesn't. 
the, the president of the United States doesn't have, does not have clearance for that kind of thing. And so does the Pope have clearance for that kind of thing in, at the Vatican? I don't know. Uh, the difference between the Pope and the president is that the Pope is for life, unless he resigns, and the Pope is actually the king. He's not just the Pope of the, of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. He is the king of Vatican City, the king. And so it's autocratic. It's the kingdom of the Vatican is, it is definitely not a democracy. We're talking about a very, uh, it's a, I'm trying to think of the word, it's a, uh, it's it's ruled by, by, by royalty, basically. He's a king. Right. So does he have access to the Vatican vaults? I don't know. I mean, I'm saying, does, a pope, does Pope Francis have access to the Vatican vaults? I don't know, but somebody does. A group of peop- people do, and the things that they've got in the Vatican vaults, they ke- they've kept them secret for a very good reason. And um, they're getting ready to make an announcement. When I say getting ready, for the Vatican, that could mean it could be a decade of them getting ready before they actually make the announcement. But believe me, they're getting ready to make an announcement. Do you think we're potentially getting set up for they're here? <laughs> Likely what is going to be announced in, 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 in some forthcoming date is not going to be, we think aliens exist and there's you know biological evidence on Mars. I think that it's going to be, they've been here for a long time and we've been in communication and we've been working with them rather than, hey, we found a, you know, some kind of an amoeba uh, in, in the frozen lake on, on, in the frozen ocean beneath the surface of Mars. No, it's going to be something much more dramatic than that. that all that kind of stuff will be ancillary. It will, it will back up the information that I believe will come out of, the, out of, out of Vatican City from St. Peter's chair. In other words, from the mouth of the Pope. Well, and, and, you know, speaking of frozen, frozen amoebas, I mean, it's very interesting to me, the U.S. Marines out of Port Hunami, California, they're stationed. This is this comes from one of the guys I've talked to. He's stationed six months out of the year in Antarctic. They're always flying. He said these massive aircrafts with equipment. Everything's really hush hush. I mean, come on, Tim, if it's just a, a few penguins and a whole lot of ice, there wouldn't be all this need for secrecy, would there? Antarctica is an enigma. It is an unknowable enigma because none of us can get there. And uh, there's so much speculation coming out of Antarctica. What I believe, what I believe, and this is pure conjecture, is that we are, and when I say we, I mean the human race, is in contact with a non-human race in Antarctica that the Nazis made contact with and that we are receiving information and that uh, we are actively involved in, in cooperation with this race and that there's all kinds of evidence for advanced civilization under the ice and so forth. That would be my speculation, pure speculation. Do I have anything to, to any kind of evidence? No, because Antarctica is locked down. Now we get all kinds of people who email us and who talk to us and say, I was there or a relative or a friend or an acquaintance was there and this is what they said. But the nature of Antarctica being so cold and so difficult to get to, I mean, you can't get on a commercial flight and fly to Antarctica. You can, there are certain flights you can you can go there on certain kinds of tours. Yes, you can get married in Antarctica. So it's not like there's a total lockdown. There's just a lockdown of certain areas of Antarctica. And the reasons are important enough to have the highest level politicians and world leaders and religious officials going down there and meeting with somebody for something. And I can't think of anybody that wants to get on an airplane and just go down to, you know, freeze their butt off in (laughs) one of the coldest places on earth just to go down there and talk about global warming or, like you said, to observe penguins or something. (laughs) I wouldn't want to do it. And And these world leaders, frankly, don't have time for that kind of thing. And it doesn't make any sense unless there's something exceedingly important happening down there. 
So that's as much as we can know. Any, everything else is hearsay, speculation, and conjecture. Yeah. And I think it's important to understand that. Well, for the waning time of the show, talk about Branson in September. Now, are there tickets left? I know there's live streaming. Talk about that. The conference is nearly sold out. We have only, if there's by a week or two from now, you're not going to be able to get a ticket to attend True Legends of Conference in Branson. However, the good news is that everybody can attend virtually through the live streaming platform, which is available on our website. And so you might be able to get a physical ticket still. There's probably, I would guess, maybe 50 or less available at this point. Um, so there are there is some availability. And, and if you get to the website and find out that there isn't anymore, it's because it's sold out. However, you can get a live streaming ticket. And the live streaming ticket, when you purchase a live streaming ticket right now on Gen6.com, you automatically get access. And that's live streaming for this year, 2018, this upcoming conference in September. You automatically get all access to all of the sessions from last year's conference for free from true legends the conference 2017 last year's phenomenal conference you can watch every session for free by simply buying live streaming for this year so so you get a two-for-one package and um i would suggest that those who want to live stream the conference sign up for live streaming now spend the next month watching all the sessions from last year to prepare yourself for what's coming this year because in many ways what we're talking about this year is a it's it's directly related to what we were talking about last year it's kind of, it, the information that we presented last year is going to flow into the information that will be presented this year so it, it's a good idea to go and refresh yourself on what we or if you haven't seen it, to go and watch uh, last year's conference. You could do that by buying live streaming for this year's conference on gen6.com. And you'll see if you go on the website, gensix.com, um, you can buy your live streaming ticket there and access last year's conference on the website. Now, you're presenting and you're going to be appearing on a media panel. Talk a little bit about that, please, Tim. Yes, I'm doing a presentation, but then I, I, we've, we've, Steve and I have put together what we're calling the, the next gen panel this year at this year's conference. And what we wanted to do because we're addressing the topic of transhumanism and the hybrid age, it's an issue that will absolutely be affecting the lives of millennials for sure, but even more importantly, their children. And so we've assembled a, a panel. A millennial panel, even though I am a millennial, I'm on the very edge of being a millennial, um, which is not something that uh, that excites me. But um, on this panel, we have uh, the next gen panel. We have myself, Josh Peck, Justin Fall, Gon Shimura and <laughs> Owen Schroyer from Infowars. We tried to get a couple of millennial chicks on the panel, but that fell through. We did reach out to to a few at Infowars in different places, so we're stuck with a bro panel this year. So, but um, that's uh, that's going to be an exciting feature of this conference, and it's we're going to have two hours for that discussion. So we're going to cover a lot of ground. Well, it's disappointing to hear that you couldn't find a female for the panel because young women in this field, I really have a hard time even finding any females that really cover the kind of topics even that I do. Women that have an extensive knowledge about this kind of stuff that are younger, you know, I'd say like 30 and under. It's very hard to find anyone that's doing that. It's kind of interesting because guys like Tom Horn, Steve Quayle, I mean, they're in their 60s and 70s. You know, we lost a great man 
this here, Chuck Missler, Tom and Steve, they'll tell you themselves they've been doing this 40 years plus. This is such a frontline center issue for humanity. And I'm so glad that the millennials are taking up the mantle, for lack of a better word. They're filling the shoes of others that have gone before them. And some of them are very tough shoes to fill, by the way. But it is encouraging for me to know that there is going to be a next generation that's dealing with things like transhumanism, which, by the way, really should be the number one issue on planet Earth, period. It's kind of a big deal when there's not going to be any more humans. Yes, I think that it's it's an affront to the human race. We are the defenders of the human race, by the way. Amen. Those of us who yeah. stand up against transhumanism and posthumanism, we're not just evangelical Christians defending some kind of a theological position. We are. But more than that, we are the defenders of humanity. We want the preservation of the human race. So I think, you know, my generation, the generation, my kids, I've got four boys. They're going to be living in a world that's vastly different than the one that I live in. They will be living in the hybrid age. And so it's this is something that uh, for me and guys like me and Josh and, and these other guys that are on the panel, this is, this is um, we see it as a threat and we need to address it. And this is really important stuff that's going to be covered at this conference. I think it's very important for evangelical Christians to really find more out about this because it is the one issue that the church should be talking about. You know why? Here's the bottom line. Transhumanism will end when the church decides it should end. I feel very strongly about that. Tim, in the waning moments, do give out your information and how folks can find your handiwork. Well, very soon, this month, you'll be able to go to timothyalbrino.com. My website will be up finally. I'll have a website up, timothyalbrino.com. You can check in now. I mean, just check in periodically over the next week or so, and and you'll find it. It'll pop up suddenly right now. There's a, a, a landing page there. And uh, also, you'll see that I have a book coming out called Alien Armageddon, which will be coming out th- before the end of this year, and you'll find information on that on timothyalbrino.com. So just keep checking in until you see the website go live. It will go live within the next two weeks. Wow, awesome. We finally get a Timothy Alberino page. Well, listen, Tim, I just want to thank you for all your incredible hard work. You're such an articulate, astute, incredibly bright young man. We're all very thankful for your work, and we cannot wait to read your book. I think it's going to be an incredible, long overdue book sometime in 2018. I know I speak for a lot of my listeners when I say everyone really looks forward to you presenting in Branson, one of the many incredible speakers that is going to be out there in Branson. Folks, I've got the information for Branson as well as the live streaming linked there below. If you want to get out there and personally meet Timothy Alberino, then do that. Anyway, Tim, I really want to just thank you for your time in laying out this very important topic today. Thank you for that. Thank you for having me, Sheila. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Tim. Folks, that was Timothy Alberino. His information is linked below in the bio. Do go check out his new website and do pre-order his book. I understand that pre-orders are going to be available in Branson. We're all going to want to pre-order. I'm actually surprised he hasn't written like a trilogy or something. He's so astute. Isn't he just an absolutely brilliant young man? And he is really following in the footsteps for sure of the greats like Steve Quayle, Tom Horn, 
and many, many others in, I was going to say the truth movement, but maybe we could call it the awake Christians. I don't know how really to define ourselves. I guess that's something we're going to have to come up with a term. I'm going to steal a a term from Timothy Alberino, the defenders. Oh, but wait, we can't even use that because, oh, big surprise, Marvel already hijacked that. Defenders, already a registered trademark name from Marvel Comics. I wonder what they're defending. I think they must be defending wizardry and high-level witchcraft because one of the main characters is a high-level wizard. And get a load out of some of the other names of the defenders. They've got Hulk, Beast, Hellcat, and Son of Satan. I'm sorry, Sheila, did you just say Son of Satan? Yes, I did. And what are his abilities? A dark magic user. Big surprise. You get in the you get in the picture here? Actually, even the creator of Hulk said that Bruce Banner was summoning the demon. I find that so interesting. Isn't it weird, too, that Adam Warlock is another fictional character that appeared in the Marvel comics around, I don't know, late 60s? Originally, his name was Him with a capital H. Sort of like I am with a capital I am, which was a term that was used to describe another Marvel character who just so happened to have, wow, been the this year's blockbuster movie featuring Thanos, the destroyer of humanity. Wait a minute. Tim said the defenders of humanity. Wow, all these Marvel characters destroying humanity because after all, humanity has to be destroyed is what this new character says. He was promoting depopulation so hard at the beginning of the movie, I thought he was United Nations Secretary General. God is I am the very thing that the new character in the Infinity Wars Avengers movie that just came out today on DVD. Isn't it weird that Thanos is referred to in the movie as I am? And is it weird that the very opening lines of the whole movie, the first sentence out of anybody's mouth is redemption and salvation? And would it surprise you to know that they mock Jesus Christ in this movie? And I did a whole show actually on this Avengers Infinity Wars, and I've got it linked there below in the bio. See now, and of course, you're all very familiar with the Guardians of the Galaxy. There's another one of those words like Guardian, Defender, Avenger. And I don't really think they're defending humanity. If anything, They despise humanity. They have nothing but gull contempt, really, for weak, gutless humans. And doesn't that sound amazingly very similar to the transhumanist agenda? And isn't that timely that Tim and I are talking about alien abductions and the hybrid age? And here you have the Guardian of the Galaxy leader, Peter Quill. The comic shows that he was a little boy, left a hospital crying because his mom had cancer and he walks out of the hospital and boom, he gets abducted by a Starcraft alien ship. So you know what he is, folks? He's a half-human, half alien. How creepy is that? I really need to do a show on Guardians of the Galaxy since I see there's another one being worked on. Remember by that creep? You remember the sick, disgusting tweets by James Gunn that got him fired from Guardians of the Galaxy? And yes, Disney was bought out by Marvel. And you know, I've done the Disney deception. I've linked that below as well. This all ties in together. And I don't know why I went down this rabbit hole other than to say, I I guess it's really like Tim said in the beginning. It is amazing. Amazing this Antichrist agenda through all this this hybrid age, just like the conference is called the hybrid age. Well, 
just read a copy of X-Men by Marvel as well. And we want to talk about hybrids. That That's the whole idea. Even as Tim said earlier in the show, Aleister Crowley and, and Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, that's where the whole concept came from for Superman, the Ubermensch, the Superman. This all ties into Marvel and DC and this Hollywood agenda of acclimating our kids to mock Jesus and accept, hey, what a cool idea to become these gods in spandex, these demigods, this return of the empire of the gods. That's exactly what we are also talking about today. And again, I'm not sure why I went down this rabbit hole, but in any event, Branson is going to be fantastic. So make sure that you do get the last of the tickets. You'll regret it if you don't. And get the live stream as well, because as I understand from Steve, even that they have to know the numbers because there is there's limited live streaming. So also do get that. This is going to be an incredible topic. There's so many places I could go, but we're out of time. <laughs> so we'll see you real soon. Good night and God bless. <laughs>